You're listening to teaching from Castle Hills Christian Church in San Antonio, Texas. More information about Castle Hills Christian Church is available at chccsa.com. Today, we are ending our At The Movies 80s edition series by looking at the top grossing film of 1985, Back to the Future. The IMDB plot summary of Back to the Future says this, Marty McFly, a 17-year-old high school student, is accidentally sent 30 years into the past in a time-traveling DeLorean invented by his close friend, the eccentric scientist, Doc Brown. Steven Spielberg, the great film director, says this about Back to the Future. It is, for me, and arguably, the greatest time travel movie ever put on film. The University of Southern California Film School's writing class, they use the screenplay for Back to the Future as their model for the perfect screenplay. But Back to the Future is much more than a perfect time travel movie, which I believe it is a perfect time travel movie, but it's more than that. Back to the Future forces us to ask deep questions about life, our identity, and our family. See, Marty McFly doesn't just go back in time to any random point in history. Instead, he goes back and quickly finds himself at the earliest moments where his parents historically were supposed to have met. The beginnings of their relationship where their romance was supposed to blossom. And he finds himself interacting with them when they were teenagers. The inspiration for the film largely stems from the writer, Bob Gale, discovering his father's high school yearbook and wondering if I had gone to high school with my dad, would I have been friends with him? Earlier in the film, before he time travels, we see Marty McFly and he's deeply disappointed with his parents, who they are, who they become, and the way they live their lives. His dad doesn't have the courage to stand up for himself when he's being mistreated. His mom is completely disconnected from their family and from reality even at some moments. And his parents don't really even some, seem to understand who he is and what he's going through. And the, the relationship there is pretty weak. Having worked with teenagers for over 20 years, I can tell you that at some point in time, every teenager who's ever lived has probably asked themselves, were my parents actually really teenagers? Because they don't seem to understand what it's like to be me. If you've ever been a parent, or if you've ever had a parent, you probably can relate to this feeling. And it doesn't matter if you're single, married, divorced, remarried, widowed, if you have kids, if you don't have kids, if you have a great relationship with your parents, or if you've never met one or both of your biological parents, or if you're even completely estranged from your biological family. We all do have a family of some sorts. And for most of us, our families are a little messy. 
And people of faith often struggle to reconcile the descriptions of an ideal family we read about in the Bible with the brokenness of our own families. We dream about going back in time like Marty McFly and helping to change our families and their past and making them better versions of who they could be. And for many of us, our families are so far from the ideal that we feel shame and guilt about where they are. And there's a sort of natural tension for people of faith when we think about an ideal family or when we consider what the Bible holds up as a, the type of family we should strive to have because there aren't many great examples, even in the Bible, of families. It all starts with the first ever family, Adam and Eve. The first marriage in the Bible, Adam chooses Eve over his relationship with God. The very next generation, one of their sons murders the other one out of jealousy. There's no role models here in these families. Abraham and Sarah, the founding family of the Hebrew people of the Old Testament, they had a tumultuous marriage, and they made some pretty big mistakes along the way. On more than one occasion, Abraham hid the fact that he was married to avoid conflict with powerful political officials. Also, when they couldn't have a child, Sarah arranged Abraham to have a child with another woman. Then she abused and mistreated this woman until she ran away. This is not exactly the perfect family. King David, the great patriarch, who was called a man after God's own heart. He had multiple wives, and later in life, he murdered a romantic rival to cover up an affair. This is less than ideal. Even Jesus himself grew up with a mom and a stepfather. He had half-brothers and sisters who thought he was crazy at the height of his ministry. Jesus' family was complicated and messy. And there are plenty more examples from the Bible of families with not-so-great histories that we could go on and on and on, and none of these would prove to be role models of an ideal family for us. But even though there aren't great examples of ideal families in the Bible, I think that's exactly what makes God's standard for families so important and so redeeming. We read in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 rules for families from the Apostle Paul. And he writes similar things in Colossians chapter 3, and, and these are often called household codes. They're rules for families to live by, ideals for them to strive toward. And we're going to read through some of these ideals, some of these rules, household codes for families from Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. He says there, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. If we go down to verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In verse 33, it continues, Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. There's some pretty strong words about what a marriage relationship would look like. In Ephesians chapter 6, the very next chapter, the very next verses, we read about the parent and child relationship. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children in anger, but bring them up in discipline and instruction in the Lord. See, some of you may be looking at this and hearing this and thinking, look, God has some pretty unrealistic standards. How can anyone actually live up to these? And maybe some of you are thinking, man, are these even the standards we should be holding? Should we shift our expectations? 
life is so different now. These seem so out of touch, so outdated, so archaic. We've come so far. How can these be the values that we hold? Well, to understand what's going on here in Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 6, and maybe even to be able to pull out what value these texts have for us today, we have to understand what the Apostle Paul is offering to these Christians. See, Paul is offering a way of being a family that's dramatically different from his peers. In the Greco-Roman world, household codes were common and they were important. And you can read them in, in works like Aristotle's works and Plato's works. But in all of those works, the emphasis is on a man owning property and dominating over women and children. And, and here, Paul offers a different picture. A picture where uh, women, wives, children, young people have value and worth. And they are addressed directly. And they are told uh, to be in mutual submission with one another. And so we may look at these and, and have a struggle with trying to understand what's really going on here. But it's important for us to realize that if wives submit to their husbands as Christ submits to the church, and if husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and if both husbands and wives submit to one another, it's difficult to fight about things like who's in charge. So what makes an ideal family? Well, what we see here in these verses, when we talk about the marriage relationship and the parent-child relationship, what we see that makes up an ideal family is the value of self-sacrifice. See, the marriage that's held up in Ephesians chapter 5 is one that's based off of mutual submission. Sacrificing your needs for the need of your partner. And sacrificial love is supposed to be held to the standard of Jesus. The highest standard attainable. We, all, we also see this in the, in the parent-child relationship. That parents are, are supposed to be sacrificing their time and their energy and their wisdom. But also their will and their need to be in control. And I know this for me as a parent is difficult sometimes, right? But this is the ideal that we're held up to. That we can practice self-sacrifice. But this family also is built around the ideal of commitment. See, we're in it for the long haul, the long term, not just for immediate gratification. And these rules, these ideals for households that Paul lays out here, these aren't just for married couples, and they're not just for parent and children relationship. These ideals are the foundation for all healthy family relationship. The biblical ideals about the family they lead to love based on self-sacrifice and interdependent commitment. But our culture's view of family, it leads to a love that's based off of self-fulfillment and off of independent identity. In other words, we want to get something from our family. Our family relationships in our culture are often transactional. What can these people do for me? What can my spouse do for me? What can my children do for me? Can they raise my status? Can they make me feel good about myself? And what's interesting is that is ultimately unfulfilling. But the Bible calls us to a different ideal for the family, one that's built around self-sacrifice. And it's in that ideal of self-sacrifice and commitment that we actually embrace and find the fulfillment that we're looking for. In many ways, the Bible is calling us to embrace an ideal that we may never live up to. I will never really love my wife as much as Jesus loves us. I will never perfectly help my kids learn and grow and flourish. But, but I can pursue that ideal. I can chase after those values. 
So how do we move closer to the ideal family relationships? Well, it's interesting, if you watch Back to the Future, you see that as Marty spends time in the past with his parents, while they were in high school, he learns more about who they are. He relates to their struggles. He learns new things about them that he had never known before, things they had interest in and talents and abilities. He's around them and he gets to know them so much better. And it improves his understanding of them and his relationship with them. I think there are two commitments that we can make that will help our family relationships improve. One is the commitment to quality time, spending time together, intentionally spending quality time together. And the other is communication, improving our communication skills. See, keep in mind that being part of a family is hard work. You will have to fight for quality time. There will always be something that is pulling at you and wanting more of your time and your energy. But you have to fight for the quality time with your family. And communication, it won't always come easy. There will be breakdowns in communication. You'll have to learn to listen better and to, to learn what your partner, what your children, what your aunt and your uncle and your father and mother, what they need and what they're trying to communicate to you. But as you learn to practice self-sacrifice and commitment, and as you spend quality time together and improve your communication skills, your family relationships will become more Christ-like. And here's something else we need to know. Even when we miss the mark, even when our families are messy, God is still at work in the midst of our broken and messy families. And you also need to know that God's ideal for the family is so much bigger than a mother and a father and two and a half kids and a dog and a white picket fence. God's picture for the family is much broader, much bigger, much more robust and beautiful than just that. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul told the church at Ephesus, the Christians, that you are members of God's family. And I say this every week at Castle Hills Christian Church. Our church is a family, and part of what it means to be a family is that the relationships that we need to develop and flourish with each other require the same sort of self-sacrifice, the same sort of commitment. We need to pursue the same sort of things like quality time and communication if we want those to develop because our church is also our family.